there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Olivia Newton-John single physical went to number one, where it stayed for 10 straight weeks. First class U.S. mail went up from 18 to 20 cents. Bear Bryant won his 315th game to become college football's winningest coach. And on November 30th, John Holmes was arrested in Miami, Florida, on fugitive charges related to the Wonderland murders later portrayed so vividly in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. It was a wild time, but even so, there were a few movies that snuck out in November of 1981. I'm Drew McWinney, and welcome to 80s All Over. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, everybody. I'm Scott. It's weird going from October of 1981 to November of 1981, because it felt like the buildup to October was like six weeks of heavy, insane movie watching. And this month was relatively slim pickings. Yeah, October was overloaded with lots of stuff. And it, I don't know if November back in the day used to be considered like the dry period before a December Oscar bait. It seemed like for the most part, November was not dissimilar to February <laughs> in a way. It feels like a lot of that must have been like rollout stuff because a lot of the little like um, drive in and exploitation stuff we covered in October, I've got to imagine trickled out like market to market. So even in November, I'm guessing you could see a lot of that stuff new and a lot of it was just hitting secondary markets or smaller markets. We did uh, make a brief mistake. So say oops upside your head, say oops upside your head. It is time to admit we pulled a boner. Uh, we missed the night the lights went out in Georgia in June of 1981, and I don't know how we did that. But what's weird is it seems like a relatively prominent title, and I've still never seen it even to this day. Don't know how we missed that film. It was a major release, but we will include it uh, in next month's episode. That movie that uh, was shot in Chattanooga when I was living there, and the lady who did the extras casting for it is the one who later got me onto the Starman set. So even this script and stuff was sitting around and was one of the first scripts that I saw, and I still never ended up seeing it. We did want to say real quick, thank you to everybody who is a Patreon subscriber. Uh, we have some really good content coming up for you. If you are not a Patreon subscriber, you really should be. There are bonus episodes. There are bonus looks at uh, the book we'll be doing. There's all sorts of uh, things that you'll get access to, and you can do it at the $5, the $10, the $15 level. We even have $1 Patreon subscribers. The point is that you guys, you have been so vocal about being fans of the show 
and you actually have backed that up. And it means a lot to us. We really appreciate it. We want to encourage everyone to stop by and check the Patreon page out or to go to 80sallover.com. Visit the store there where you can buy things that you hear us talk about here on the show through Amazon. And it'll kick a little coin back to keep things up and running. Like Drew said, even the small donors, it all helps. It does take a lot of time. So we ain't going to lie. <laughs> it's a kind of a, a work-intensive podcast. I wish we had chosen a simpler concept. Drew. <laughs> well, <laughs> I got to say, though, like with uh, Night the Lights that went out in Georgia, part of this is for me playing catch-up on things that I knew of or was aware of or saw go by in pop culture that now finally I'm filling in the gaps on. So I feel like in some ways this is completing a project that started when I was a little kid. And one of those movies is the first one we're going to discuss this week. I knew the poster. I know the backstory clearly, but I had never seen the pursuit of DB Cooper. This man got on a plane flat broke and got off $200,000 richer. Are you trying to tell me the only reason you did this thing is for me? Only you. And the money. Robert Duvall, Treat Williams, The Pursuit of P.B. Cooper, a true story, no fooling, rated PG, starts Friday at a theater near you. Uh, this movie had a tough production. This was originally to be directed by John Frankenheimer, of all people, probably would have t- turned out a lot better. Then it went to a guy named Buzz Kulik, who got fired or left, and then it went to Roger Spottiswood, who would go on to direct some pretty good movies. And unfortunately, uh, the pursuit of D.B. Cooper is a doesn't have much energy for a heist uh, chase movie. You know what it feels like they were trying to do? It feels like they looked at Melvin and Howard and they said, hey, let's do sort of this folksy. But instead, it's more of a chase movie. And then when they do try to spend a little bit of time with like Catherine Harold and Treat Williams, who play the couple that go on the run. By the way, as fantasies go, being on the run with a bag of money, Catherine Harold in the early 80s is about as great as it gets. But the movie doesn't slow down for these little character moments. And it's a shame because it does feel like it's cast well with Robert Duvall and the way that whole relationship works and the backstory between him and Treat Williams and why he's chasing him. And I like Paul Gleason as a comic foil. There's some good stuff in it. But I, you know, I'm about halfway through it and I'm thinking this is just not it doesn't have the energy and color that a pursuit movie like this really needs. And then to bring in the uh, ostensible or alleged based on actual events angle they don't even try to get like the actual uh, uh, like heist right. They don't even do the heist. They get through. That's such a weird choice when you're telling a true story is to pick up after the true story happened and you're telling everything else, which is completely and utterly made up by you. Right, right. Like if I if if I were to say, oh, there's a guy named Drew who lives in California. That's based on a true story. But then if I say, oh, uh, and he joined an alien cult and moved to Mars. Is it still based on a true story because it's Maybe. about a real person? What do you What do you know? Have, what have you heard? Yeah, I, I just I'm watching it. And it's like based on a true story. No, I wish that they had told me the story of what led up to the th- even just the details that they did have because I still think it's a crazy story. If you ever want to see how like like success, what what level of success you achieve in Hollywood is a complete crapshoot. Just look at Treat Williams. In just a couple of years, he did Hair, which didn't make a lot of money. 1941, Prince of the City, and then this. Now, those are four films in a row. He's really good in all of them. The films did not connect with an audience. And look and who he was working he- with, Milos Forman and Sidney Lumet. Even Spottiswode here, I think, does his job really well in, in certain sequences. There's uh, the whitewater rafting scene is probably the best action sequence in the whole thing. And as a scene, 
pretty well done. I, I have to believe that this is the movie that got Roger Spottis with the job on Shoot to Kill. <laughs> because it's a much better chase movie, which we'll get to in a couple of years. Can you imagine if Martin Brest in fighting shape had done this movie? I don't know. I mean, I just part of me thinks, oh, wouldn't it have been more interesting to just kind of base it on actual events? The producers would have said, well, no, because we don't really have any. We don't really know what happened. And then my response would have been, then don't make the movie. It's also one of the rare um, lead performances by Catherine Harold, who I just I don't get how people didn't figure her out. She's really funny and charming. When you look at her in modern romance or you look at her in Into the Night or in this movie, she's up for everything that's asked of her. And I, I really don't get why she didn't connect. Well, we go on from a uh, mildly uh, diverting. I mean, you, all right, let's be fair. Robert Duvall, Treat Williams, Catherine Harold, Paul Gleason. It is watchable, but it's not particularly memorable. Uh, and then we move on to something that I think Drew and I probably liked a lot when we were kids. I, I'm going to speak for Drew, and he can correct me if I'm wrong. We realized that these things were junk. This is the second of the Looney Tunes compilation films, and it is called the Looney, Looney, Looney Bugs Bunny movie. Get ready for big fun. Prepare yourself, rabbit. I'm a coming over the wall. Big laughs as Bugs Bunny hits the big time in Academy Award winner Frizz Freeling's Looney, Looney, Looney Bugs Bunny movie. Hey, lions. Bugs is back in Hollywood, and this time he's up to his ears in funny business in the looniest movie of them all. Watch for Frizz Freeling's Looney, Looney, Looney Bugs Bunny movie, starring Bugs and all his friends in some of Warner Brothers' greatest comedy classics, combined with all new action-packed antics on the big screen. Here's the only good thing that I'll say about the curation that was involved in, in this movie is the, the shorts that they pulled from tended to be deeper cuts than some of the stuff that you see uh, sort of omnipresently now, like what's Opera Doc and, you know, Michigan J Frog and stuff that you've seen a million times. They went a little deeper here. There's some of these cartoons that they pulled clips from and pieces of. There's some really unseen gems here, but they wrap it in sub Saturday morning, ugly, witless wraparound animation that I find ultimately kind of disrespectful to the legacy of Warner Brothers. Yeah. What, what irritates me is that all right, I did the math on this. OK, this is a compilation consisting of material from 14 shorts, and each short is generally about seven minutes. So that would equal 98. This film is 79 minutes. So what bothers me here is, yeah, on one hand, wow, I, I've seen Alibaba Bunny on television 45 times. I'd love to see it on the big screen. But then you give it to me on the big screen and you cut half of it out. No, no. I think one of the only ones they put on all the way through is at the beginning, uh, which is Nighty Night Bugs, one of the Oscar winners. It is an unbelievable rapid fire succession of gags. And if you've ever seen Pink Panther Strikes Again, the one where Clouseau is trying to get into the chateau where Herbert Lom has gone insane and he has the laser. It is clear that Blake Edwards loved the way the gags were built in this one in particular, the whole getting into the castle thing and the way it keeps messing with him. I love seeing some of this stuff. But you're right, man, the the cynicism of how they've cut and packaged it and how awful some of the new animation is that stuff with the where the framing device is essentially Yosemite Sam starring in Devil and Max Devlin, where he has to go back to Earth and get somebody to replace him in hell is crazy. 
And, and I, I mean, I empathize. Warner Brothers realized, hey, our cartoons are still popular. How do we make some money out of it? Write something original. Give Bugs and Daffy an original screenplay. Don't just recycle somebody else's work. Because Look at how cartoons. bad that dog on the red carpet character is. There's a reason we never saw him again, and there's a reason Warner Brothers didn't go, hey, this dog on the red carpet is now a major member of our cartoon stable, and we've created this new beloved character for the agent. It's awful. It looks like something you would see telling you to brush your teeth between segments on a Saturday morning show. To me, uh, Looney Tunes are about as sacred as cinema gets. Termite Terrace is one of the greatest gag machines of all time. You don't trim a frame. Don't touch it. The weirdest part of this is that Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie was Chuck Jones. And so clearly the emphasis was on the Chuck Jones years. And it was him making a case for why his take on Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner is the end all be all. This is Frizz Freeling, who is essentially making his case for a different era of the cartoons being better. But I don't feel like Frizz Freeling lands his punch here and makes the case for why this is the best batch of Looney Tunes stuff. I feel like Chuck Jones did a great job of stealing the spotlight with that Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie and really making the case, I am the best at this. My advice would be go to IMDb, look this movie up and click movie connections. And it'll then show you a list of the 14 shorts that were used to make this feature and then go watch those shorts. It's because of my affection and deep love for Looney Tunes that I firmly do not recommend these compilation films. Hey, Scott, what's next? Well, what we have next is a horror film. Mm -hmm. And it's... Scary and gory and nah, I'm just kidding. It's another Tom Savini schlockfest called The Prowler. <laughs> it was 1945, the night of the graduation dance. The war overseas had just ended. The terror at home Boy. was about to begin. <laughs> the Prowler. If he wants you, he'll get you. You may think you're safe, but you're dead wrong. The Prowler, coming soon. I love how much money they must have spent on the opening, whatever it is, like 12 minutes of this movie, where they, they do period detail that is so expensive and so over the top. And all I could think is, I don't need to see any of these extras. I don't need to see any of these people. They could spend this money somewhere else in this movie, but... Holy cow, they really went for it. And then when it cuts to the present day, woo, does it take its time? The Prowler has a handful of moments of legitimately interesting horror. And by that, I mean either an interesting location or a good scare or two or some really interesting gore because this was Tom Savini. And, you know, if you're a completist who's running through the every slasher film of the 80s, then, you know, the Prowler probably is right in the middle of that list somewhere. Uh, and I, I would recommend that you, you know, dig it up and add it to your, uh, check it off your list. But aside from Savini's impressive gore effects, there's not much here. If you're curious about Joseph Zito and you, and it's so funny because this was, this is one of those guys who his name popped up enough times in the eighties. Um, Joe Zito would go on to do what? Friday four yep. um, in invasion USA. Yep. And missing in action and red scorpion. So we're going to actually we're going to we're going to check in with him several times over the course of this decade. But you would think a guy who directed this, which is so clearly just kind of a middle of the pack. Nothing really sticks out. He's not the guy I go to as the producers of Friday the 13th, the final chapter 
to kind of stick the landing and that it's kind of amazing to me because this is a case of a guy who I just think every time out he turned a movie in. I don't know what else to say about it. it he turned one in. By the way, this one's also known as Fall Break for you old fango heads. And Pitchfork Massacre during one of its uh, drive-in dumps. And overseas, it's known as Rosemary's Killer. So there's a spoiler. Jesus. <laughs> Apparently, Rosemary gets killed, everybody. All right. It looks better. Like, home compared to, like, Home Sweet Home or something like that, it, it looks a bit better. It has more a little more money behind it. It's way better than, like, Graduation Day, just in terms of production quality, clearly. Like, and that's the thing. That's what I mean. Joe Zito turned in a movie. It looks like a movie, like a low-budget movie. But it just, there's nothing about it that is distinguished or particularly interesting, including the killer, who's a fairly anonymous visual figure. Again, noteworthy for being an early work of Joe Zito and Tom Savini, I would recommend it to, you know, old horror heads, but it certainly doesn't transcend the genre. So, hey, Scott, I feel really bad about this next movie, and I'm sorry that I saw it. Are you talking about the oddly platonic romance between 60-year-old Richard Burton and 16-year-old Tatum O'Neill in the Canadian drama Circle of Two? No, I'm talking about the John Derrick, Bo Derrick, sort of creepy underage movie fantasies. Let's just talk about both of them at the same time. <laughs> I hardly even know where to begin. Ugh. All right, I'll do I'll do Circle of Two, you do fantasies, and then we'll switch around. Circle of Two is stars Richard Burton, 60 at the time, and Tatum O'Neill, 16 at the time. And it's a warm but non-sexual romantic struggle. <laughs> I love how careful the words are. Uh, it's a romantic struggle. It's not a relationship. He doesn't touch her. He only leers. He doesn't touch. Uh, how far backwards can I bend over to like make this seem a little bit less tacky than it is? It's not 100% like garish exploitation, though. It what happened in the late 70s, early 80s? There was this whole subgenre of artsy jailbait, and it was dudes like Louis Maul and David Hamilton. And like David Hamilton is the, the gross end of the pool, and Louis Maul is the no, no, I am making art house movies. So, right in the middle fall some of these other films. John Derrick to me is the, the shallow, shitty end of the pool. And this movie didn't even come out until after. Bo Derek had already become a star in things like 10 and Tarzan the Ape Man, which we talked about, which is terrible and incoherent. Well, guess what? He warmed up with another terrible and incoherent film that he made with her in like 1973. She is 16 in the film. And so, of course, the first time we see her, she is naked. It's upsetting. It is about a guy and a girl that have been raised together by their creepy foster grandfather i guess is the way you would describe it who decides i'm gonna marry these two off and he starts putting them into you're gonna fuck situations and they start getting really uncomfortable about it and she wants to buy a bathtub dude that's the whole plot she wants a bathtub and she yeah and she really and she thinks about the bathtub and every time she thinks about the bathtub she's naked in it so that we see her naked because john derrick's a creep john derrick Rest in peace, John Derrick. Uh, I'm glad you're not around to make any more movies. Let's put it that way. You're, you're a piece of shit. Is she having sex with her brother or not is not a good premise of a movie. <laughs> it's gross. And here's what's really upsetting is it's not even the vile thing it pretends to be. 
it's ultimately pretty conservative and it's about marriage and the, and these kids get married before they ever do anything and she gets her bathtub dude um, it's- spoiler <laughs> holy shit i cannot believe you just spoiled fantasies Shot in 1973, but released in 1981. And she got the bathtub, and you ruined it for... I can't do this fucking show anymore. I know. I'm sorry. I will I will say this before we go on. Circle of Two is a mawkish and, and not very effective drama, but it, it is not made to be the kind of exploitation we should have maybe not done these two films together. I think that's what's interesting, is looking at how hard Circle of Two tries to tell this kind of story and circumnavigate all the creepy stuff. But all you think about is the creepy stuff because it's so clear that you're tap dancing around it. We're going to talk about another film a little later in this podcast. And it's one of the big titles we're going to talk about this week that I really, I I have a lot of thoughts about, but it's a movie where as the filmmaker was making it, you could tell that he was fascinated by one of the female stars of the film and falling in love with her as he was making the film in this movie. Watching John Derrick's work, I can't tell you what he's doing because it's such bad filmmaking above and beyond the creep factor. He's genuinely a terrible filmmaker. All right. Well, hey, next up. Super duper. Oh, my God. It's in my head. I may never get rid of it. It's Super Fuzz. Meet Super Fuzz, the craziest cop this side of Inspector Clouseau. Super Fuzz, a blockbusting, high flying, water walking, smooth talking, fleet footed, skydiving, hard driving, crime fighting, all American heroes. Super Fuzz, just for the fun of it. This one is an Italian-American co-production. <laughs> Super Fuzz, also known in other markets as Super Snooper. That theme song is awful. <laughs> and uh, Lisa was sitting in the room while I was watching this one. And at a certain point, she looked up and she goes, Oh, my God, please make it stop. It's just the same backing track. And, it, and to me, for some reason, it sounds exactly like the Charlie's Angels theme. Look, I kind of like the Trinity films. I think um, Terrence Hill is kind of charming. It is weird, the voice that they used here, the undubbed, accented voice. And it's a strange choice in general. I think Ernest Borgnine in this movie is (laughs) hamming it up as hard as he can. And boy, did they make a big swing for tone. And it, it more than anything makes me think of the Walt Disney live action Kurt Russell computer who wore tennis shoes type comedies yeah if this had a little bit more production value you'd probably you would swear that it was a a late late 1978 disney release uh it feels like italy's answer to that just like sergio leone is italy's answer to like hollywood westerns like this is okay well we can do that exact kind of family comedy and it's clearly meant to be a family comedy it's very 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 g-rated it is about a policeman who uh gets magical powers superpowers After he shoots a missile out of this guy with his pistol his kryptonite drew why don't you tell our listeners what his kryptonite is the color red the color red is his kryptonite his powers are so confusingly defined and randomly used that it's uh just a movie where anything can happen 
anything can and happen. And this just goes back to what we talked about, uh, people sitting around an executive boardroom and saying, okay, okay, superhero movies, you know, that we want, so we want a piece of that pie. And somebody's like, well, we don't have the rights to any major characters and superhero movies are really expensive. Well, what if we do it as a comedy? So that way, if we don't nail it, people just, you know, oh, it's an amiable comedy. And I know there's people on Twitter when I mentioned Super Fuzz last week, there's there are fans. This does have a cult following. It oh, definitely it's, does. It's got an energy to it that is nonstop and amiable. It is humping your leg from the moment the movie begins, determined to entertain you. And it's like, hey, man, I'm just here to make you happy. That's it. I'm Super Fuzz. I got nothing else on my mind. And you can't get mad at Super Fuzz. Yeah, it's a puppy of a movie, but it's just not it's not very funny. Uh, maybe for kids, maybe for kids of the early 80s, it was funny. But I mean, if you showed this movie to your boys, they turned it off after five minutes. Yeah, if they turned Condor Man off, I think their tolerance level for Super Fuzz would have been very, very low. And they would use Super Duper to torture each other forever. And now we move on to a film that I have seen at least a dozen times. It must be. Let's get into Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. What happens when former Beatle George Harrison brings together John Cleese, Sean Connery, Shelley Duvall, Catherine Hellman, Michael Palin, six little people, one little boy, two living gargoyles, a giant, an ogre, Napoleon, Robin Hood, a supreme being, an incarnation of evil, 12 cowboys, six flying cowheads, and a device for tripping through time? Answer, Time Bandits. Rated PG. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. The fantasy begins Friday, November 6th at a theater near you, rated PG. Singular, one of a kind, amazing, one of the great film fantasies. I was like, singular? No, dude, it's definitely plural. There's more than one time. (laughs) Don't correct me on my own podcast, Drew. There's more than one time, Bandit. (laughs) This is the first one, Scott. You're talking about the sequel. Right. All right, Drew, Time Bandits. Like, what's the first thing that pops into your head other than, like, the poster? Handmade. Handmade films? Not just for, not just handmade films. The aesthetic. This is one of the first films I ever saw where it looked like everything, even the background, even the sky looked handmade. There is something about Gilliam's fantasy aesthetic that when I saw this, I went so head over heels. I fell so deeply in love with the way he brought this to life, the way he would stage scenes with how much of the the world he would create. And he is really great at evoking things without necessarily having a ton of money or without having like the giant set. He's so good at doing it microscopically. And yet you remember the giant version. Time Bandits is, of course, uh, a story about a young boy who teams up with a raucous group of little people uh, who have a time map and can jump all over history timeline. Uh, We meet uh, Napoleon, uh, Ian Holm. We meet Robin Hood played by uh, John Cleese. It, it is episodic in, in, in some ways because they're jumping from place to place, but there also is a really fun and interesting arc that covers you know the episodic bits. Like Drew said, the look of the film is absolutely wonderful. I tweeted about this the other night, and people must have gotten four responses within five minutes of, oh, that bit where they push the wall back in the kid's room. Everybody remembers that moment, Drew. Everybody loves that scene. This hit me as hard as Star Wars did when I saw it the first time. And it was one of those experiences where each new moment, each new set that Terry took you to was so overwhelming to me. And it started in the English house, like with the plastic over everything in his house and with the way his parents are obsessed with television and with the way Kevin feels in that house. 
And then, yeah, the way the the time bandits are introduced, that first moment where the horse comes through his wall and where it disappears is so amazing and haunting. And then when the time bandits appear the next night and when they push that wall and the supreme being is coming down the hallway after return what you have taken from me. It's jaw-dropping as an image. The, them falling into darkness is such a great idea. The way the door opens in the sky and they fall into Napoleon's time is amazing. I love the mix of the time of legends and fantasy with history and the sense that, okay, he jumps into real history, but he also meets Robin Hood and there's giants and there's monsters. And it's an original screenplay. This is not based on a book. You'd watch Time Bandits and you would swear that this was based on a wildly popular children's book from 1940. I love the weird intersections of Pythons when they worked away from Python. And I like that this is Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam for screenplay who never did anything else like that together. Yeah, if you were to ask a Python expert to uh, make the oddest two-guy combos, Gilliam and Palin don't instantly fall together. You, you generally think Cleese and Palin. But then you look at, like, Brazil, and Michael Palin is um, unbelievable in Brazil. So Time Bandits is uh, Terry Gilliam's third feature directorially after Holy Grail and Jabberwocky, and it is the first in his quote-unquote trilogy of imagination uh, which would also include Brazil and the adventures of Baron Munchausen. What I loved about this movie as a kid, I couldn't really articulate it, but it almost felt to me like these were the munchkins from The Wizard of Oz who wanted to go on the adventure. These felt like guys who bailed out of The Wizard of Oz. It, it felt it had a real Wizard of Oz feeling for me as a kid, like the other side of the coin. Maybe. That's interesting. I, I've always been so fascinated by Kevin Zark in the because his parents are rotten and unlike Oz and unlike some so many of these fantasies where the whole point is to get home Kevin's home is toxic and not where he needs to go back to and I love the the ending of the movie in Evil's Castle I love that everything in that castle that you see at the end all the the horses and the spaceships and everything else they're all the toys that you see in Kevin's room at the beginning of the movie on the floor it's the exact toys so you can read it as this is all Kevin playing in his room if you want to and you also notice in Evil's Castle there's plastic over everything just like in his mom and dad's house you mentioned time bandits and nowadays it's almost like mentioning like the mist you mentioned the mist and within 30 seconds all people want to talk about is the ending so you mentioned time bandits and within three minutes everyone's like god that ending I think that ending is not for the kids. That ending is for the parents who brought their kids to the movie. That ending is basically saying, hey, parents, pay attention to your children. There's another scene in this that rattles me, and it rattled me more when I was 11. At the game show? No, it's with King Agamemnon, and everything's wonderful. And Kevin's this kid who loves history, and he loves being outside, and he loves adventure. He has found the perfect father. He has found the perfect place to be, the perfect place to spend the rest of his life, and they take him from it. If I were Kevin, I'd fucking murder the Time Bandits. They ruined his life there. I, to me, that moment is crushing. And but I think they're I think they're terrible, selfish little people in the movie. And I think that, and that's what's wonderful about them as characters is who wrote they them. They are like pirates. They yeah. are selfish, greedy. They're written real. They're written interesting. They're not written as just safe. Kudos to Terry Gilliam. For like not making these little actors, these little people, like novelties. These are real flesh and blood. Some are nice, some are assholes, some are funny, some are not. David Rappaport, Kenny Baker, Jack Purvis, these are good actors. Well, and this is kind of what launched Rappaport into the rest of his career. And for a while, Rappaport was everywhere after this film. As Randall, he is so charismatic and he has such a swagger and he is so in charge of the rest of the team. And yet, 
There's this great playfulness in the way they stage the physical stuff between all of them. Seeing Kenny Baker play a role outside of R2-D2 finally and seeing him as a character, he's so good in this and so sweet and wonderful. And and you realize what a playful performer he is. What I like about Time Bandits is I think you see something different in Time Bandits when you're 14 as opposed to 40. You will not see the same story. Uh, you will still obviously enjoy the humor and the adventure and the, vi- and the visual design. But you watch Time Bandits at 14 and then at 41, and they, they could not be more different. I, the entire Robin Hood sequence, the way he interacts with the poor people, the way he interacts with the kids, the way he talks to people in general, it's an unbelievably funny sequence. Ian Holm is so good in this. And that's the thing is even the even though it's episodic and even though we keep moving, Everybody who shows up, instead of just showing up and kind of waving, hi, I'm the movie star, and then we move oh, on. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. How about Catherine Hellman? There's this wonderful sequence where the the uh, the crew gets onto a boat, and it's playing with our perspective because our heroes are a child and, and seven little people, and then we're on a giant boat, and then Gilliam is totally messing with our heads because we don't even grasp how large the boat that we're on is. And then there's this evil, there's this monstrous giant on board, and Catherine Hellman is his wonderfully sweet domestic wife, and it's just the irony of, like, this horrible monster and then this prototypical doting loyal wife next to him. Uh, it, it's just so funny. And then there's a, an on, a running gag with Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall as, as a... As a doofy couple who uh, throughout history just keep getting screwed over. And by Michael the- Palin has a strange sexual dysfunction that's never quite named, but it's very upsetting, whatever it is. <laughs> it's, it's just wonderful. It, I mean, and we haven't even talked about two actors yet. We haven't mentioned by name yet, Sean Connery or David Warner. Oh my God, what work they do. Connery as Agamemnon. He's not in the film very long, but he adds a real class to it the, makes the a strong impression. Yes, he does. And uh, David Warner, who terrific in this. So funny. And there are I'm sure there are still people that are borrowing from his performance when they're playing bad guys and things, because he did such a great job of navigating both being genuinely scary and freaky and still hilariously funny at every turn. When you're if next time you watch Time Bandits, hopefully soon, just keep your eye on David Warner and watch how much fun he's having as the villain. The last thing I'll say is uh, this is an example of how money isn't the most important thing when you're making a giant fantasy film. When I was working with John Carpenter, one of the things that he kept asking us over and over as we did script notes was, what is my camera actually looking at? Because for him, it was, if you're not going to see it, I don't want to read about it and I don't want to build it and I don't want to have to think about it. I just want to know what I'm looking at. And the way Gilliam answers that question in this movie and the way he spends his money and how carefully he constructs this world it's one of the biggest feeling films I've ever seen, yet not one of the most expensive films of the 80s, not even one of the most expensive films of 1981. It is a beautiful, beautiful example of how you can craft anything if your imagination is right. And the bonus, Drew, this movie made money. Yeah. This was a hit. It's It basically gave him the rest of his career because, it, you know, everything he then chased studios wanted this studios wanted this movie from him and when they made baron munchausen you better believe columbia was saying to him it's our time bandits right because that's what they all recognize i mean it was a monster hit it came out of nowhere and it did it made terry a hot commodity and it is to his credit that he just stayed on his rail like he knew what he wanted to make and brazil was not the easy choice after this but it's the honest choice oh and you if you think we love time bandits wait till we get to brazil 
All right. So I worked in theaters for years and Thanksgiving is a huge family day. People come to the theater. They want to see something. I can't imagine what Columbia thought they were doing, releasing Absence of Malice at Thanksgiving in 1981. I'm dying to hear the trailer that Bobby finds because I really don't know how you sell the movie. Like, I get that you have Sally Field and Paul Newman and you have Sidney Pollack directing. It's certainly a big package, but the movie is about a woman who writes a newspaper story that's sort of inaccurate, but sort of not. And the guy that it's about gets really pissy and then fucks with her and fucks with the people that leaked the story to her. And that's it. That's really it. I'm Michael Gallagher. I want to know where this story came from. This is Megan Carter from the Standard. Don't expect the truth unless you're willing to tell it. Paul Newman, Sally Field. I'm free every night but Friday. How about Friday? Okay. She writes the story that sets him up. You can't write this. It's murder. It's a newspaper, a narrative for everybody to see. He writes the book on getting even. Absence of malice, rated PG. We trust our best reporters. And, you know, this is a movie about, like, you know, how, how can people abuse that trust? Well, she's a terrible reporter, too. Terrible. You know who's great in this movie? Melinda Dillon. Melinda Dillon's wonderful in this and really sad. It's the kind of performance, as soon as she shows up, you know she's going to be one of the most interesting things that happens in this film. And every time she shows up after that, you're right. She is the most interesting thing going on in every scene. Uh, she was nominated for this, uh, but... It's uh, it's a very good screenplay. Sidney Pollack, for the most part, keeps it moving along. I think it's a bit longer than it needs to be. You know, it holds your interest. Yeah. Well, there's nothing there's nothing about it that's boring. We watched it the other night, and I hadn't seen it in years and years. And it's certainly at every point, Paul Newman's interesting. He's kind of swaggering his way through, and he's a guy who I like the question it asks about if you can be somebody who peripherally had some glancing contact with organized crime and then how does that follow you after that years and years ago i worked for somebody who had connections to organized crime and we found out about it after we'd been working for him for a while and we found out about it because we went to a mob wedding on long island and as we were going in they told us you're being photographed by the fbi so smile and it blows my mind to think that somewhere out there some still today there may be some photo in an fbi file of me walking into a banquet hall in new jersey somewhere and could that ever come back to haunt you? And Newman's character in this movie plays the righteous anger of a guy who is uh, painted with an unfair brush by a press that has no interest in whether or not the story is true. There's real righteous anger that you can play in this, and they do keep it kind of light and sort of they mean to entertain you. This is certainly not meant to be a dry treatise on press responsibilities. It's but it's kind of an indictment, but it's more of a you know a populist type movie. But any anytime the reporter sleeps with the subject, you're not doing a hard hitting piece about journalistic ethics. You're doing a movie. This is not an all the president's men type movie. This is a movie that says reporters can be shady people too. Bob Balaban has a pretty pivotal role in this as the guy who plays everybody a little bit, and he wants to see what's going to happen, so he goes fishing, and that's that's really how this all begins. And Balaban, I think, is really good in it. And I think Wilford Brimley, when he shows up late in the film, is in one scene. And it's one of those one scene wonder roles where somebody comes in and goes, hi, I'm here to kill for 10 minutes now. And then he kills for 10 minutes and then leaves. And it's just great. I find Pollock's movies kind of like a warm bath. There's nothing wrong with them. It feels like, you know what Sidney Pollock feels like? And I, this is going to sound like a knock to cynical movie geeks, but I don't mean it as a knock. Sidney Pollack was Ron Howard before Ron Howard directed. For me, the big difference is, and we'll get into this once we get to Tootsie and then beyond, I think Sidney Pollack, one of the best actors 
of the 80s. All right, Drew, up next might be our buried treasure of the month. Let's talk about road games. The truck driver plays games. The hitchhiker plays games. Aren't you kind of young to be hitchhiking out here all by yourself? Aren't you kind of old to be picking me up? And a killer is playing the deadliest game of all. Oh, he's just killed a girl. Did he make love to her first? I don't know. What's the difference? It makes a lot of difference. I think in order to play the game properly, we have to know what he thinks of women. Stacy Keach is quid. No, no, it's Q-U-I-D. D is in death to young girls, you cretin. Jamie Lee Curtis is hitch. Attic and camera. Looking for a little adventure. I could go to Disneyland for a little adventure. What I'm looking for is a little excitement. <gasps> if someone doesn't stop soon, there won't be anyone left alive to play road games. I just want to start by saying, Richard Franklin, you big Hitchcock-loving weirdo, I see you, man, and I love you. Richard Franklin is a guy whose name kept popping up throughout the 80s, and he uh, was a huge Hitchcock aficionado. He communicated with the guy. They actually became colleagues and friends, and that's partially how uh, Richard Franklin ended up getting to direct the very underrated Psycho 2, and then he went on to do Cloak and Dagger, which is a kid's Hitchcock movie. But yeah, Road Games is the one that I think kind of put the stamp on Richard Franklin's name internationally. Well, I think like Hitchcock, who worked with certain screenwriters over and over, part of what Franklin got right was Everett DeRoche, who wrote this, is just as Hitchcock obsessed as he is. The two of them together, I think, came up with one of my favorite clear Hitchcock homage movies that manages to not just lift from Hitchcock. It's not, oh, I love this filmmaker, so let me copy everything he does. It's, I love this filmmaker, so let me absorb what I do and and do some of an homage to what he does. They, that's the thing, is they think of things the way he would have in terms of how you do certain visual beats. There's a beat early on in this movie, very early, so I don't feel like I'm giving much away, where Stacy Keach, who has encountered this van on the road a few times, and he saw a hitchhiker get picked up by the van and then go to a hotel with the guy in the van. And the next morning when he wakes up, there's a trash bag that Stacy Keach's dog is extra interested in while the trash collectors are coming down the street. And as Keach is watching, he's also noticing across the street that the dude in the van is in his hotel room watching from the window what's going on with the trash bag and the dog and paying very close attention. And the way that whole thing is staged that is the way Hitchcock thought about stuff is he knew how to let you know just how much information you need and let you make some assumptions that might or might not be right. That's the key. How much how much information do you really give? Do we really ever know what was in that bag? Less is more. And especially when you're dealing with a suspense thriller. Uh, so it's Stacey Keach who ends up picking up a hitchhiker as played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And this is kind of a horror movie, more of a thriller, but I don't, I feel comfortable calling it a horror movie too. This was her final thriller slash horror film. And it feels like this is the right way to wrap up that era because she kind of says it all here. And it's funny. It's the same role she plays in the fog, essentially. It must've probably come up on set. Like, wait a minute. Didn't I just play this exact character? And I'd read that uh, Richard Franklin, the American distributors, they, were, they already had American distributors while they were shooting, and they had to have an American star, and they were lucky enough to get Jamie Lee Curtis, and Richard Franklin had said, I wish I had bulked up her character once we cast her. She was always made to be kind of a minor character once we got Jamie Lee Curtis, because if you're seeing it for Jamie Lee Curtis, you might be a little disappointed she's 
she shows up late. There's a point in the film where you're worried she's about to become Jason Lee, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee in The Hitcher. And thankfully, it's not that kind of role. She doesn't get ground up. But if you like The Hitcher, I wrote down The Hitcher, Joyride, and Duel. If you like those movies, you should definitely check out Road Games. I love the sense of humor here. Stacy Keach, through this entire thing, is still doubting himself. And one of the things that's really clever is he's a trucker who's doing long-distance hauls across Australia. He's an American. He's got a pet dingo. He's been doing it for a while. And he says early on in the film that he doesn't take speed. So he hallucinates more because he doesn't have any chemical help while he's staying awake while he's driving. So it kind of gives you permission over the course of the film to question how much of this is Stacey Keach, uh, how much of it is just his perception breaking down and how much is actually happening. And I think Franklin is very clever about the way he parcels that information out to you. Big Richard Franklin fan. And I'm glad that this did find a small but vocal fan base in America because it helped him get Psycho 2. And I, I really like Psycho 2. <laughs> um, we're going to move on. And this next movie is a tough one to approach in some ways. And I think it's a it's a movie that if you're going to talk about it, we got to spend a little time here because it's genuinely pivotal for this filmmaker. And this filmmaker, as I consider him, one of the titans of the late 70s, early 80s. But this is definitely the moment where everything fell apart for Peter Bogdanovich. The movie is They All Laughed. They all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. They all laughed when Edison recorded sound. Of course, it would be impossible and inappropriate to discuss this film without discussing the tragic, untimely death of uh, Dorothy Stratton. You, if you've ever seen the film Star 80... Or the TV film that Jamie Lee Curtis was in. You might know the story of how Dorothy Stratton was uh, killed by her sl sleazebag boyfriend uh, or husband. She was uh, having an affair with Bogdanovich, and uh, then she died. She was killed before the film came out. That's not going to help a film. And unfortunately, uh, the film's not very good. Well, it's a fascinating movie. I'm. It's one of those films I've come back to several times, and, and you can't watch it without seeing it through... This is that era where filmmakers were starting to make themselves the movie stars. I think Peter Bogdanovich very much was making movies by this point about Peter Bogdanovich and about how, you know, he was kind of making the case for himself film to film at this point as I'm I'm the guy. I'm the one that remembers film history and I'm the the keeper of the Hollywood flame and I'm the guy that's doing the screwball comedies. And I'm there's a sense that I think he wanted to be as big a commercial force as Coppola and Lucas and Spielberg. And there was a moment where he was, but this movie was largely improvised on set. Blaine Novak, who co-stars in the film, he's the dude with the crazy long hair. He and Bogdanovich came up with the basic premise. And the premise is three private detectives who work together, who are all following married women. And they are each engaged in trying to catch those women cheating while they are also falling in love with those women and fascinated by those women and starting to cross lines and approaching them. Bad improv is easy to spot. True. I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. And it's not, it, this is not improv like, you know, what people think of as the Judd Apatow school of improv where, you know, you're scoring points during these scenes, but you're also trying to entertain and you're also trying to convey information. There's one sequence in this where Colleen Camp is just kind of on a tear. And I got the feeling Colleen Camp probably got very few moments in her career where a director said to her on a set, Colleen, I love you. I Whatever you do is right. I just want you to go, and I'm going to let John bounce off of you, and whatever you do, 
I know it's going to be great. So, John, your job is just keep up with her. For an actor, that's a dream. And you see them tearing into this stuff. I don't get the feeling Bogdanovich had much sense of how to direct these scenes to make their points. This film feels wildly aimless in terms of theme. But I will say, although the film is very slight and, and unfortunately kind of forgettable, Ben Gazzara, quite good. Well, and his stuff with Audrey Hepburn is weird because they had an affair. So by this point, they're not having the affair, but they're doing material about having affairs. And they're both dealing with the real life fallout from the affair they had while they're playing this material. It's fascinating to me. It's kind of hard not to be interested in watching their faces and just wondering how much of this shit is them talking to each other through these scenes. It was uh, an infamous flop in that it lost a lot of money. Well, and nobody would release it. It's basically Bogdanovich put his own money in and took the beating of a lifetime. Yeah, I would call it slight with some charming performances, but not very funny. And I would say that it does have an appearance from my beloved John Ritter. John Ritter on roller skates trying to do surveillance on somebody kind of worth your time. That's a big, long sequence. And I even like the way they leave. He's trying to get the roller skates off and has to leave on one roller skate. And there's just physical opportunities there that Ritter takes. And there's not a moment in the movie that Ritter's not on. But what I found interesting watching the movie, I was looking for. Can you tell that he's in love with Dorothy Stratton? Can you see it? The woman that he shoots with the most heat in the film is not Dorothy Stratton. It's Patty Hansen, who plays a cab driver named Sam, and he shoots her like he is crazy about her. Every scene she's in, she is like this crazy, flirty, super cool, evolved, hip chick. And I don't get any of that from the stuff with Stratton that he shoots, but I did get really uncomfortable watching the stuff where she comes home and her husband is yelling at her. Yeah, no, there's something in this film that really is unsettling in that if I'm sleeping with someone's wife while I'm making a movie about the fact that I'm sleeping with someone's wife, it's just a little bit tacky. And then, and then, of course, it has nothing to do with the tragedy, but that just makes it even... Well, yeah, and then the film, because I've got to imagine he was doing post and cutting this and looking at footage of her and heartbroken and for a comedy... This movie never stood a chance. He's doing post on a comedy while dealing with the easily the greatest personal tragedy of his life. And, dude, nobody could be expected to finish a film properly under those circumstances. Frank Sinatra's music is all over this. And by all accounts, Frank gave it to him because for nothing, because he just wanted him to finish the movie. And I think Bogdanovich was deeply loved by a lot of artists, and they clearly wanted him to, to be OK. But I think it just broke him. And I think you feel it in the film there's a sense that the movie kind of gives up at a certain point. I, I wouldn't say I like They All Laughed. I wouldn't say it's a good film, but I feel a lot of empathy for this movie. You know, it's, it's like, hard it's, not to given all that went on. And it's like, I, I can't help but feel bad for obviously Dorothy Stratton's family, obviously Peter Bogdanovich and his team. It's just you know, like, no matter how good or bad a film is, that kind of story should not surround it. It's just too tragic to for the film to escape that that story, you know? So, yeah, we're going to move on to this last film. It was one of the biggest releases of the year. It was a huge swing from an acclaimed filmmaker based on a novel that was considered both unfilmable and almost unapproachable because how beloved it was. We're going to talk about the one of a kind ragtime. <laughs> It was a time when a nation lived out its wildest fantasies. 
when a sexual obsession triggered the murder of the century. It was a time bursting with life, passion, and rebellion. When a man's pride held a city for ransom. It was the beginning of an incredible time. When the famous and the faceless made history together. Bad time. Good time. Ragtime. Coming soon. So this is from uh, Milos Forman. What I find fascinating about this movie, well, there's a lot I find fascinating about this movie, but eight nominations, zero wins. Here's the thing, man. It's I and I I wonder this sometimes because there are books that I love dearly, and I just don't know if certain books were ever meant to make the jump to film. And Ragtime, the Eel Doctoro book is this kaleidoscope. It's this crazy thing with like 150 characters and everybody's interwoven. And he took real history and characters he created and he mashed it all up together and he interwove them so that his characters like it's a bold idea and it's a bold execution and the book is beautiful the film is very laser focused largely on one storyline that's what's interesting to me about this movie is that ragtime the film seems in a film way kind of huge and sprawling but then once you realize that the book that it comes from it's literally one-tenth of that book not only is it one tenth of the book, but Foreman definitely decided to tell a certain type of American story. And this is very much a story about the injustice of race in America. And it's really hard to watch the film now and not find it still contemporary and still poignant and still difficult. <laughs> the fulcrum, the, the, the major inciting incident of this film is a black man driving in his car being harassed by a fireman, authority figures, and how that escalates into a huge tragedy just because of simple bigotry. And it tries to tell some of the other stories first because there's one story about Robert Joy and his wife. And Robert Joy, we talked about when uh, we did, I think it was Cutter's Way. Yeah, boy, is he good in this. Yeah, and he's great in this. And um, Norman Mailer has a pretty terrific role at the beginning of this film as a guy who has a statue made of this chorus girl who then later becomes somebody else's wife. And the guy whose wife it is now wants the statue taken down because it's a nude statue. And it becomes this huge thing between the two of them. But then it kind of disappears. Well, yeah, it's done by a certain point. But all it does then is launch Elizabeth McGovern, who is the wife that everybody's so upset about, into the rest of the movie. And she kind of interweaves with some of these other characters. And she is a real historical figure whose story then is fictionalized after a certain point. And look, I love McGovern in the film. I'm fascinated by Brad Dourif in the film, I think. Oh, Brad Dourif is great. How often do you get to see Brad Dourif play a, a, a love interest? He's adorable in this movie. I mean, he's played a lot of freaky characters later in life, but as a young man, he was completely handsome fella. Well, and we're looking at Foreman here who had directed him in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I think probably had some of the best sense of what Dorf's range was and who he was as a, a person. So I love that he had him back and gave him this role in particular. Uh, Mary Steenburgen, this is her first big role after she got her Oscar nomination for Melvin and Howard. And it feels like this is what you get for getting an Oscar nomination is then you get to be the lead in this giant or one of the leads in this giant Milos Foreman, Oscar Beatty, sprawling, epic studio movie. Howard Rollins is fantastic 
is the uh, black gentleman who has to deal with all these horrible bigots. Cole House Walker Jr. Cole House Walker Jr. He is fantastic. Uh, you mentioned Mary Steenburgen. Debbie Allen, small role, fantastic in it. Mandy Patinkin. And Drew, brought out of retirement after 20 years, and this would be his final film. James Cagney. And man, he's on fire in this. If you're watching Ragtime because you're curious to see Cagney, be patient. He's in it early and doesn't become important until later. Yeah, and it's and the movie does a lot of that. Like it introduces people once or twice, and then later they'll show up in other places. And I do like that. And I feel like Robert Altman at one point was attached to direct this, and it makes a lot of sense that it would have been an Altman film. It does feel like a a handsome Oscar bait film combined with a Robert Altman film. <laughs> I can see how Altman's version would have been a little bit more um, rough and tumble and more ragged and feel more like those old photographs kind of come to life. It's what I love about McCabe and Mrs. Miller. When he does period stuff, it's beautiful, but it doesn't feel like anybody else's period stuff. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I forgot to mention James Olsen, who is an actor whose name never doesn't usually get mentioned, but you know him. And he plays like the patriarch of the family. It's interesting because you're talking about James Olsen, the, uh, the character actor who has a major role in this as father. And I love that he never has a name that Mary Steenburgen is as mother never has a name. They're the couple, the rich couple who they find a child outside their house, an abandoned child. And the mother is terrified and, and ends up showing up. The police find her. And instead of her going to jail and the child being abandoned, the, the family steps up and they offer to take her in, take the child in. And then the father is Howard Rollins who comes looking for it. And that's one of the things that I think, Foreman does so well is he spends almost like 45, 50 minutes setting all of that up and setting all that in motion. And then by the time Rollins finally gets a look at his child for the first time, the joy that he feels is so beautiful. It is a great moment. And that's it's interesting because prior to that moment, father had been kind of a dick. And then once the young man shows up and then proves that he's clearly irresponsible in many ways, but he's a good person. Yeah, and he wants to be in this kid's life. He wants to step up and do the right thing. And then the father character, without a scene that shows it, kind of evolves from close-minded and cold to quite a bit warmer. And you don't see that moment happen. It's just a good gradual character moment. The role of Colehouse Walker was like highly coveted. And I think one of the craziest moments in OJ Made in America, the documentary that came out last year that was so heavily covered and, and widely acclaimed, one of the craziest moments is they talk about how OJ came very close to getting the role of Cole House Walker and wanted it, wanted it so badly that when he didn't get it, he lost his shit because he felt like he understood this character as a guy who had found a way into white society, had found a way to become completely accepted, yet every now and then would bump right up against it and realize, oh, no, I'm still black. And that's still a wall that I'll never really get over. And I can't imagine if this was O.J. Simpson giving this performance, watching this movie now, the last hour of this movie, you wouldn't be able to take. It would be unbelievable if it was him now. Aside from the fact that O.J. Simpson's a piece of trash, he's never been a good actor. No, no, it's clearly Rollins was the choice and Rollins is wonderful in this movie. But yeah, it's as a character. Wow, it's unbelievable. Also, if if Randy Newman had not existed, they would have had to create him in order to write the score for this film, because who the fuck else in 1981 was doing Joplin and doing Joplin variations and incorporating syncopated ragtime into pop music? Yeah, and I feel kind of bad that this movie went 0 for 8 at the Oscars. It deserved a little something. There's a lot of work, a lot of effort went into this film. 
And uh, I, I quite liked it. Oh, it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. It's not the book. And I think it's more than anything, a great accompaniment to the book. Uh, if you like the movie, if you walk out of the film really impressed and touched by what you saw, which I think most people would be more than anything, I hope that leads people to then go find Doctorow's work and read it because you'll just get the bonus version where it's like 500 more things that are piled on top of this great story. Let, don't don't read the cast list. If you if we've piqued your interest on ragtime, uh, just put it on and watch it. Let me warn you, though, IMDb and Wikipedia both list a cameo by a movie star who is not in this film. Jack Nicholson. They're wrong. He's not in the movie. I thought he had like a just he's literally an extra in a background scene or something. No, no. He was supposed to play the James Cagney part like he and Foreman, obviously, after Cuckoo's Nest had this great relationship. And Nicholson wanted to do that, but ended up doing Reds instead. The person that they claim is Nicholson is the pirate on the beach scene where she's in the silent movie that Mandy Patinkin is directing. Oh, right, 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 right. Go back and look. You can find the clip online. It's not Jack Nicholson. And if you need visual verification, just put on Reds, which is the movie he was making at the same time. Look at the two people side by side. It looks like 55 year old just came off a bender. Jack Nicholson. It's not him. I can see why people thought it was, though. Now, the fascinating thing about this and Reds there's a long sequence that's on the DVD that I have that was cut in which they, the character of Emma Goldman showed up in this movie in Ragtime. Uh, Emma Goldman being a very famous feminist at the time. She ran into Evelyn, the Elizabeth McGovern character, took her to apartment and talked to her about undergarments and about how the corset is a form of restriction uh, imposed by the patriarchy and teaches her how to lose those undergarments that are binding and meant only for men's pleasure. And it's this long sequence took several weeks to film, cut completely from the movie. Elizabeth McGovern, of course, was nominated for Best Supporting Actress as well for this film and lost, as you said, to Maureen Stapleton, who played Emma Goldman. I think there's something insane and karmic and wonderful about the way that played out. Not for McGovern, but it's just one of those crazy footnotes of how films kind of come together. So that's November 1981. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Drew, uh, what do we got lined up for next month? Oh, my God. Well, we've talked a lot about Reds today. Reds is a huge, huge part of 1981's uh, holiday landscape. And we'll be talking about that. We're going to talk about a John Belushi movie I am endlessly fascinated by. We're going to have a great early Tom Cruise movie. We're going to have another Burt Reynolds movie. Didn't we just have a Burt Reynolds movie like last month? We've got another one. We've got unlikely movies from two of our greatest comedians and we've got one seriously classy horror movie as well as the oscar winner for best picture dude december of 1981 is going to be insane yeah I'm, I'm glad we're wrapping this up i'm looking forward to 1982 uh thank you to everybody who l listens who tweets who just promotes the show. Anytime you tell a friend that you like it, we see that stuff most of the time on Twitter. And I don't see it on Facebook, but I see that stuff on Twitter. We appreciate it so much. We really do. Uh, without people saying we like the show, we would have stopped by now. <laughs> yeah, we'll have some amazing new bonus content coming for you on Patreon soon. As we said, go to the 80s all over store. It actually will help. And uh, we will talk to you in two weeks for December 1981. <laughs>